Let's quickly turn to Ephesians and uh, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I will read from verse 3 down to verse 10, if you are there with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, upon us, in all wisdom and insight. And this is now the passage we'll be looking at this morning. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Well, brethren, we are still going through the series that I have entitled Celebrating the Unsearchable Riches of Christ. And really, the emphasis there is on celebrating. God, in his salvation, has not sort of opened a small window in the back where we can simply try and squeeze in and we should simply be grateful that we have escaped condemnation. No, he has invited us into a major feast, a feast where we can be in a celebratory mode. And what the Apostle Paul does here is to open up something of that content. And what we have said is that uh, verse 3 all the way to verse 14 is actually one sentence. The Apostle Paul was just talking and talking and talking from the fullness of his heart concerning these unsearchable riches. And um, we, last time we were together here, which was at the beginning of September when I was preaching, basically we saw this being brought out in the words just prior to verse 9, where he says there that it is according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. That word lavished, suggesting plentiful outpouring upon us. That's what he has done in bringing us to himself. Today, we take a prophetic view that speaks about what God seeks to attain through Christ's redemption. A prophetic view. 
We are standing in today, but we are looking into the future. In fact, strictly speaking, we should be standing at the point where Jesus Christ comes into the world. And then we are looking into the future. Thankfully, we are beneficiaries of something of that same redemptive work of Christ. And so, today, where you are standing is completely different from where Paul was standing together with the other apostles. Because what we have seen in this worldwide spread of the gospel, they did not have opportunity to see. All they saw at that time was what was happening in what today we call the Middle East. But for us today, we've already begun to see that what God said he intended to do, he has been doing, he will continue to do until Jesus Christ comes back. And what is that? It is in order to bring the whole of creation together with one agenda, to glorify and worship him. The whole of creation brought together to glorify him and to worship him. And to do so from the heart. In other words, this is God's agenda, but now it will be our agenda as well. It doesn't matter who we might be. Well, let's quickly look at this in these two verses before us. To begin with, what God plans to finally achieve in Christ is something that he has revealed. And as you notice from the title of my sermon, it is that Jesus will unite all things in creation. He will unite all things in creation. That is something he has already revealed so that we, even as we come into the kingdom, can know that this is his ultimate agenda. Look at verse 9. After telling us that he lavished upon us the riches of his grace in all wisdom and insight, we are told, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. He's made it known to us. Now, when the Bible there speaks about making known to us the mystery of his will, the word mystery is not in terms of mysteriousness, so that it is something we cannot know or we cannot understand. Rather, the word mystery in both the Old Testament and New Testament of the Bible is used to refer to something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed by God himself. Previously hidden so that nobody would have known what it is. And then God in sovereignty decides to reveal it to us. We notice this, for instance, in Romans chapter 16, at the very end of the book of Romans. What I want you to notice there is this aspect of it being hidden and then revealed. Uh, the doxology, the doxology. Uh, 
in verse 25 of Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, listen to this, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. So it was hidden. But listen to verse 26. But has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. I'll come to the prophetic writings in a moment. But also notice in Colossians 1 and verse 26. Colossians 1 and verse 26. The Bible says there, exactly the same aspect of hiddenness and then revelation. Hiddenness and then it is made known. Let me begin from verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And then listen to this. To make the word of God fully known, okay, so that is the, the scriptures being the truths that are there being known, the mystery hidden for ages, there it is again, the hiddenness, and then for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So it's this aspect that we must understand when the Bible is talking about mystery, mystery, mystery. It's not the modern sense of mysteriousness, something that is hazy and you cannot quite put your fingers properly on it, but rather it is that which was previously hidden but has now been revealed. How has that been revealed? Well, we've already noted it's been mentioned here in the Word of God. In the scriptures, God has made known his will. He has made known his purpose. He's told us where history is going. It's history is not at the mercy of politicians. It's not at the mercy of terrorists. God has revealed in his word where history is going. And it is something we need to come to terms with and embrace. And at the very center of it is what he achieved at the cross through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we read again there in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which is set forth in Christ. He set forth in Christ. How? When Jesus went to the cross, when he said, it is finished, when he rose from the dead and went to heaven and he was given the reins of history so that he can say, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me. Therefore, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. There is an agenda that God has. He's now given it to me to realize it. Set forth in Christ. And history is going to be my story. Because at the very center of it all, the centerpiece is Calvary. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, paying the price for our sins and saying, it is finished. The Apostle Paul goes on to tell us when this agenda of God was going to be accomplished, when it was going to be carried out, and he calls it the fullness of time. The fullness of time. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. For the fullness of time. This little phrase is also used in Galatians, just two or three chapters before our text. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. The Bible says there, but when the fullness of time had come, what happened? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, there it is again, the cross, Calvary, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and on and on it goes. The point there to do with this phrase, the fullness of time, is that it, it refers to when the time is ripe. When the time is ripe, certain things begin to move into motion. An obvious example I can think about is puberty in life. There's a body clock that God has put into each one of us. And as we are growing, there's a time when that just changes and hormones begin to run riot in our lives. We don't know what to do with ourselves and so on. It's the time is ripe for that to happen. Similarly, when old age is creeping in, uh, I remember many years ago, well, I hope it wasn't too many, but you'll understand what I mean. Uh, I was beginning to... Um, struggled to see at a distance. So I wasn't wearing glasses in those days. So I used to do this when I'm looking at a distance. So I was advised to go and see, you know, these uh, people in eye clinics. And so when I went there and they tested me, the lady who was doing it said, welcome to old age. <laughs> welcome, she said. You are not sick. Uh-uh. The fullness of time has come. Okay, so they, there's a certain point at which certain things just begin to happen. 
Now, with respect to God as well, well, all this is by God as well, but with respect to redemption, God had, had set certain things into place at certain times. And there's a time when he was going to usher in a new dispensation, a new testament, a new covenant, and that was going to be based on the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that time came, Jesus was going to be born. And that's what this is referring to. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And a number of prophets in the Old Testament were constantly telling people about this Messiah who's going to come. This Messiah who's going to come. This Messiah who's going to come. And even those who were closer to the time, like uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was able to now say that I am the forerunner. I've come to clear the way because he who has promi been promised is now coming. And most of you will remember the words of the old prophet Simeon as he saw baby Jesus and he, he got him from the mother, held him in his arms and said, now Lord, let your servant depart in peace. What you had promised to Israel has now come. This is the fullness of time. And friends, that's the period we are in. What a privilege we have. We are in that phase of the fullness of time, which is unraveling, it's, it's being unwrapped across history from the time Jesus said it is finished to the time we will hear the trumpet sound of God, of the, the, the shout of the archangel, and Jesus is coming back. This period is referred to in as the fullness of time. In other words, the time is ripe. It is ripe. It is a period that God must now fulfill his promise. Look at chapter 3 of Ephesians. Chapter 3 and, and verse, verse 9. Chapter 3 and verse 9. Let me begin from verse 8 because it brings out the unsearchable riches of Christ that we are celebrating. So let me begin from verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages. Again, remember the hiddenness. The hidden for ages in God who created all things. And this is it. So that through the church, I'll come back to that, the manifold wisdom of God, which again in chapter 1, we have at the end of verse 8, when he says, which he lavished on us 
in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. Here he calls it the manifold wisdom of God. Might now be made known, so it was hidden, it's now being made known, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what is that? Listen to this. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has realized it's, it's happened now. Yes, it will continue unfolding, but it has happened now. And we are something of the beneficiaries of that. Oh, brethren, I just want you to, to sense how privileged we are that we live in between the first and second coming of Christ in a period when God has set into motion. A number of years ago, uh, in fact, it's probably last year, I was seeing a, a small video clip on YouTube. It, it was absolutely amazing. It was dominoes. Now, dominoes are not very common in Zambia to most of us. It's basically, you know, little pieces that have, uh, they're rectangular pieces. They have a few sort of numbers on one side or the other, and, you know, you play it as a game. But uh, the, the, there's now what they call domino effect, and it is the fact that when you hit one of them, if you put them side by side, if you hit one of them, they then hit all the others, and then they, they fall to the ground. But this one was a gigantic project where they put those same domino pieces around a room in different ways, snaking around the entire room. And when the whole thing was ready, somebody just hit one side. That's all. And it's just amazing how the things kept falling flat, falling flat, turning around, falling flat, falling flat, turning around, falling flat, falling flat, and so on, all the way until the very last piece fell down. Now that's human ingenuity. But what we're being told here is that that's what God has done about history. He has set the domino pieces in place that will lead all the way to the second coming. And when the time had come, this fullness of time, when, when it was ripe and he sent his son into the world, he pressed bang. And that history is unfolding. It's unfolding. It's unfolding. It's unfolding. And somewhere in that history, 21st century has come. You are here. In that history, it continues. And the time will come when you will be in a coffin in front here. You'll be history. But the story of God will continue. You've played your part. It's now over until 
what he intended to achieve is achieved. What is that? Well, that's what we find in our last verse there. Listen to this. Which is set forth in Christ, back to our text, Ephesians 1, verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time, and this is it, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, what God plans to achieve in Christ is that of unifying everything with one goal, as I hope to present to you in a few moments. And it is a goal of worshiping the triune God. Worshiping the triune God. It's undoing what happened in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted to start pursuing their own agenda. Not God's agenda, their own. God just wants to stop you from being like him. If you eat of this fruit of the tree, you too will be like God. And so Eve abandoned God's agenda for her own, ate the fruit, gave it to her husband, who also knew that God said don't, but he still went ahead and ate, and as a consequence, sin came into the world, corruption came into the world, rebellion came into the world, and the world went from being obedient to God, worshiping God, serving God, to the mess that we are in today. What he was now doing was to start the motion where individuals would be reconciled to him and as a consequence would be reconciled to one another. And that reconciliation is in him, that is in Christ. He is the primary instrument who's carrying it out and he ultimately is the one in whose sphere this unity is happening. He's the one who's doing it in an incredible way. As one by one, we are reconciled to him, we are finding ourselves reconciled to one another. Our personal agendas are put aside. It's now all about God, his honor, his glory. It is all about him and the great gospel cause. It doesn't matter what else we're involved in. At the center of all this now, for all those who are genuinely converted, is Christ. The triune God, that he might be glorified in and through us. And if there's a place where this can be seen, it's in the church. Out there, the world is red with blood as the fighting continues. 
You come into the Christian church and you find people who are not interested about, you know, this is who I am and this is who I am and who are you. No! It's about Christ. You know, I was just asking the uh, our brethren from Campus Outreach to stand up and they stood up. And I hope you noticed that, you know, they are black and white working together. Eh? I hope you noticed that. In the world, that's a lightning rod. Eh? This color issue is a lightning rod. But look at them. They stood there. Two of them appeared at the door there to say, hey, here we are. And more than that, what have they done? They've left America. Eh? What to many of us is what? The promised land. They've left it. For one agenda. Christ. That's what brought them in. Christ. And of course we've thrown in our shalom as well. Just so that we, we, we add our own element to it. That's the point. I was, as I was preparing this message, I was also thinking about our eldership, for instance. I, I have to, to remind myself that we are from different tribes in that eldership. I have to remind myself, because we just don't think in those categories. It doesn't occur to us. There's one thing that continually occurs to us. Christ, Christ, Christ. And it's the same with the rest of the church here. Christ is unifying us as we are coming to him through the door of repentance and faith, trusting in him to bring us to God, to bring us to heaven. Everything else shatters into complete insignificance. Complete insignificance. One of the churches I preached in while I was in the U.S., they held a joint service in view of my being there. And basically one church was generally white, the other one was generally black, and they came together for the first time in their history. They invited CNN to be present, and CNN didn't come because it does not fit the narrative. But they rejoiced in the fact that while out there they are fighting, they were able to express their unity in Christ. Not as a social activity, but for God's own agenda, for the gospel, for Christ, for the worship of God, putting aside our own petty agendas in him, to unify all things in him. One of the greatest barriers that ever was is that of Jews and Gentiles. That was a barrier that was set in reinforced concrete. Listen to the Apostle Paul referring to this in chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 11. 
It's a rather lengthy passage, but it makes the point, and therefore I will still read it. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And when it says called, it's the attitude. It's the attitude. You know the way in which you're sort of pointing and those uncircumcised Philistines or Gentiles. The attitude. That's what he's referring to there, which often breeds um, catastrophe, breeds the divisions. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, the fullness of time. But now, the fullness of time. In Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there is Calvary again. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing. So he's broken down in his flesh, that is in his body, this division, he's broken it down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, there it is again, in him, in him, one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God. Notice, that's where it begins. It is, first of all, vertical reconciliation to God. In one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There is the achievement. Through one spirit to the Father. That's our interest. It's in our Father, in his glory, his honor, his worship. That's what unites us. In one. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are one. We are one. There's no sense that no, it's us Jews, us Jews. There's no sense that oh, those Jews there, you know, those Jews there. It's brother and sister in Christ, in the same household. All the great things that Jesus has accomplished. Or better still, that God has accomplished in Christ. But one more step, and it is this, that this unity will be around the great worship of God. That's why I keep saying it's that one agenda. It's not unity in and of itself. 
what is often referred to as the social gospel or social uh, justice agenda in and of itself but it's about the worship of the triune God that shines so brightly that our differences pale into utter insignificance. And it's not just us as human beings, but it is the whole of creation in heaven and on earth. Let me end on that note. Uh, first of all, uh, let me read Colossians 1, verse 19 to 22, and then Revelation 5. And with that, we must close. Colossians 1, 19 to verse 22. For in him, all the fullness of God, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, notice, to reconcile to himself. I hope you are seeing that. Not simply to reconcile to one another, but to reconcile to himself all things. And we need to emphasize that. It's to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And then he says in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And it says there, in order to present you holy and blameless. Notice the change there. It's not just to one another so that now you can call each other comrade. <laughs> comrade Mbewe. <laughs> comrade warrior. Comrade. Ah -ah. It is a transformation that makes us godly. It makes us holy. It is unto him. And to present you holy, blameless, and, approach, and above reproach before him. Well, let's quickly end with Revelation 5. Revelation 5 combines something of Jesus arriving in heaven to receive the right to rule history and also the fruit of that all the way to the end. The fruit of that all the way to the end. And it is that fruit that I want us to see. Jesus has just now been given the reins. We are told that you are worthy to take the scroll, verse uh, 9, and to open its seals because you were slain. So again, it's the cross, it's redemption, it's atonement on the cross. But notice, you were slain by your blood, Sorry, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, and it says, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So you've drawn them from, from all these divisions across the globe. But what have you done? Listen to this. And you've made them a kingdom. Not many kingdoms, one kingdom. That's what you've done. Made them one kingdom. And what's a kingdom? It's a dominion where a king rules. In other words, they've now come together under your rulership to obey you, to pay you homage from every language and tribe 
and people and nation. And then we read there in verse um, 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, now this is in heaven, where is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing? And then he says, and I heard every creature, every creature, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Friends, that's where history is going. That's where history is going. Oh, I feel sorry for individuals who play hypocrites in the Christian church. I feel sorry for them. Because it's a matter of time. They'll be found out for who they are. They will be the losers. They might sort of cause trouble here, there, and so on. And in the process, the church is, is smitten. It's, it's, it's feeling the pain and so on. But it's still in the domino effect. It's still in the domino effect. It's still going according to the agenda. Finally, the gospel will win. Christ will win. Everyone will turn around to worship him. Some, of course, with joy because they are participants in the redemption. But as Philippians itself tells us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee. Not just those who bowed in, on, on earth, but every knee will bow and acknowledge Jesus to be Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where history is going. May I urge you then, brethren, to come out of that little shell of me and you, Jesus. Yes, it makes sense when we get converted. Because at the point of our conversion, our one concern is my sin leading me to an excruciatingly painful hell. I better escape the Jesus, save me. Okay. We take it for granted. But I'm saying, sooner or later, you have to realize this is not a mere hell insurance policy. This is not just about me escaping hell to get into heaven. There's a grand agenda that I have been called into to participate in the great worship of the triune God. And it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. My wife and I had the opportunity to attend the SING conference. And it's the equivalent of a choir in Hero Stadium. It was amazing, the singing that was there. 
We looked at each other, my wife, and said, think of what heaven will be. When to be past those thousands, and it's basically billions upon billions ascribing worship to the great triune God. That's where we are going. Let me end with just one part, and it is this. Are you participating in that great agenda? Are you? Are you? Do you realize it's worth it? It's worth your time. It's worth your money. It's worth your talents. It's worth everything about you. To throw into this grand agenda. That's where history is going. Jesus will unite all things with one agenda. The worship of God. Is that what you wake up to in the morning? Is that what you're training for in your college or university? Is that what's happening in your soul to be part of this great agenda of God? Oh, that we might do so. That we might put our all in this agenda. Because we are on the winning side. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious